Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. Dave O'Brien from City University, London. This week we'll be talking to the author of No Matter, Theories and Practices of the Ephemeral in Architecture, Dr. Anastasia Caradinu from the School of Architecture, University of Portsmouth, UK. Okay, great. So uh, we're doing something unusual for yes. new books uh, in critical theory this week. We're in a cafe in Islington in, in London. Uh, usually when I do these things, I don't get to meet uh, the person I'm speaking to. Uh, it's usually, you know, kind of, if they're American or Australian, it's usually over the internet. So it's a pleasure to kind of sit down and have a cup of tea with one of the authors. Um, so would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah. First of all, I'd like to thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure meeting you you and taking part in this fantastic blog you're working on. Um, um, so um, I'm an architect and a senior lecturer at the University of Portsmouth. So who you are. Oh, sorry, yeah. Uh, my name is Anastasia Carandino. Um, and uh, over the last few years I've worked as a practicing architect, researcher, and also I've been teaching architecture in Portsmouth, at the University of Portsmouth for the last three years, more or less. Before that I was in Edinburgh, where I was teaching and doing research. Um, so I've lived in the UK for a number of years, in Greece before that. And um, the work that is presented in the book was partly done, a major part of it was done in Edinburgh between 2005 and 2010, roughly. Um, and more recently I published it as a book. Um, is, this, is this the first book you've written for a view other academic um, papers? It's the first book um, in the form of a kind of monograph or something. Before that, I was the main editor of another book and of a journal issue. Because architecture um, is structured slightly differently from uh, other areas uh, sort of art humanities and critical theory research in the UK, whereby uh, there's a lot of crossover with practice. Yes. So architects tend to, you know, they have their own practices and they might come in one day a week. Exactly, yes. So were you working sort of in in the field before you uh, became an academic? Yes, uh, I was working as an architect and uh, while I was doing research I was still working as a freelance architect um, and taking projects in practice. And are you still doing that now? Have you still got Yes. Yes. How does that work in terms of combining um, what is a very, sorry to interrupt, a very kind of rich, dense, very theoretically informed text Mm -hmm. with the demands of a client or someone who wants something built or or something like that? How how does that work, those two two worlds? Well, um, one could say that these two worlds are quite different. But at the same time, one could say that they're not that different. And to be honest, I couldn't imagine myself doing just one or just the other. In my mind, one informs the other. And um, all the collaborations I've got in academia inform my work in practice. And all the collaborations I've got in practice inform my work in academia. But um, I 
can understand that this is not really kind of straightforward. Yes, I understand completely. And I think this two worlds is shown quite clearly in the book as well. Um, so I'll turn to the book now, which is called No Matter, uh, Theories and Practices of the Ephemeral in Architecture. Um, and I think I said earlier, it's a fascinatingly kind of rich, in-depth, detailed text because it covers um, both, I suppose, people's individual experiences of the built environment, but also it has very specific um, points to make about architecture theory as well. Um, and one of the ways you do that is through um, setting up an argument that architecture theory depends on particular divisions uh, and particular ideas. Absolutely right. Um, the main idea of the book has to do with this kind of paradox, exactly what you present, that as several theorists have argued, architecture is on one hand something that is experienced, something that sometimes remains in the background. We people experience it by habit, by being in it, by encountering spaces, by living through spaces. And on the other hand, one could say that architecture is perceived as a world of ideas and concepts, or in other words, as an interesting form, or as an image, or as building or a construct that one perceives by focusing his or her attention to it. Um, Walter Benjamin describes it quite clearly when he, uh, this uh, kind of idea, when he talks about the buildings being perceived, being experienced in a twofold way by touch and by vision. So, on one hand, uh, one can experience buildings by paying attention to them, and on the other hand, he is experiencing them more without focusing on them, by living in them. Sumi talks about a similar thing when he's using the metaphor of eroticism. And he says that buildings um, or, um, he says that buildings are on one hand perceived as a concept and on the other hand they are lived in. So he presents that as a paradox because he, what he says is that one cannot simultaneously position himself away from the construct and contemplate upon it and at the same time being um, almost unintentionally immersed in it. So there's a paradox. We cannot be in these two conditions, immersed in these two entirely different conditions simultaneously. So is this where the idea of the, the 
ephemeral comes in and is useful then, or is the ephemeral something completely different? The ephemeral in this book has a notion, uh, is analysed and is uh, described and discussed in a number of different ways. With the notion of ephemeral, or rather, I presented the other way around. Okay. The notions that I was initially looking at are notions such as the intangible in architecture, the atmospheric, the ambience, the um, elusive. So these aspects of space that we cannot quite represent or grasp, those that remain in the background. And are they the things that make sense of something being lived in rather than something being looked at, something being experienced visually? Mm, yes, maybe. That sounded like a qualified yes. Um, yes, that's right. What exactly do you mean by that? It, when you were drawing those uh, distinctions from Motivention and Shumi as well, it struck me that um, there was a distinction between, I suppose, almost how the architects and how discourses of architecture see buildings and discuss them in visual terms, almost as a sort of aesthetic object, uh, whereby we understand buildings because you know, we think, oh, that's hideous, or oh, that looks lovely, or that lends it with background, these kinds of And then opposed to that is the lived reality or experience of being in a place, you know, some buildings being spooky because they're very old, or buildings you know, feeling clean because they're brand new, or you know, these, these kinds of, yeah, as you say, atmospheric ideas, and the two, or two different poles that, you know, as you say, the human, you can't exist in both worlds, you can't. It is really, really interesting because one could can respond to that that yes, the way we experience space in our everyday life is the latter through immediate experience. However, one could also argue that it's not that it's it's something that does both at the same time. And that's where the paradox appears. So I slightly kind of stopped you in your tracks when you were explaining the ephemeral in the book. And you said you use it in lots of different ways. So could you say how these different ways are used and how it feels? Um, the notion of the ephemeral was actually um, a result of some bits of the research. Okay. So, my initial purpose was to examine these intangible qualities. And in the process of examining them, different types of experiments and processes were followed. Um, as, it, as it's presented in the It's rather that the theory is informing a core process 
um, that um, is raising some questions. It sort of makes sense when you uh, pack it like that because the book is both full of questions um, but also I think because of its theoretical basis tries not to start off with a linear straightforward narrative of here is a problem, here is how I will solve it, which you know is quite common to a range of humanity and science thinking, but also I think it's quite common in architectural terms as well, you know, kind of the design, engineering aspect. And how that set of questions plays out, I think you know, there's a range of things I'd like to talk to you about. Is that kind of theoretical basis, the theoretical starting point? So you mentioned Walter Benjamin, another important um, theorist of set of ideas is that kind of Deleuzean uh, idea about the kind of the Rizzo thing, you know, unfolding rather than having kind of linear straight lines. I just wonder if you could comment on um, the way theory informs the subsequent chapters and the work. into certain questions. Yeah. As you said, one could de design as an experiment, let's say, uh, almost a scientific experiment, and conduct them, and come up with some results. Another way is to let the questions lead to specific practices, specific actions. We could also call them experiments, but which are designed in a fairly open way. So we didn't start with a very... In, in this book, I don't start with a very specific hypothesis of what the output, the outcome, the results should be or would be. Um, I engage in a number of processes and let the process reveal aspects of space, of the questions, for example. When I was conducting the sound uh, recording experiment, it was a very experimental project in the sense that I was prepared to have negative outcomes, like in science, with an experiment, and then there is no valuable outcome, um, which still would be an interesting thing to observe. In that case, maybe I wouldn't include it in the book, but it would still be an interesting thing to do. So, for example, in that section of the book, my question was, as architects, we generally focus on the visual, and that's great, fine, that's very um, uh, So, my question is, if for a while we focus on the sonic, would that tell us something about space, the city, the way we experience our environment, or not? So, in order to address this set of questions, I thought, okay, the only way is to go and do something with 
sound in cities such as reports, specific places, specific routes, and then conduct a number of experiments um, in relation to that. One of the experiments, for example, was to invite a number of, of volunteers and ask them to listen to these recordings and transcribe what they thought they heard. And a number of fairly interesting outcomes appeared. Then, at a later stage, I tried to transcribe the sound recordings into visual diagrams, visual graphs, and see if that would reveal something about the place that other media and other processes wouldn't reveal. And again, there are some things revealed, although I have to say other stages of the experiment were much more successful, like the stages where the sound was displaced together with the maps. That gave a better understanding of the places. This, this, you're talking about the chapter beyond the visual versus the non-visual side of the senses. You've, you've introduced that um, division in architecture. You kind of, I think you draw from Jack Derrida on this, the privileging of the visual in, in architecture and the kind of relegating the non-visual. And those sonic experiments were designed to sort of disrupt that division. It was very interesting that it played out across you know, kind of gallery installations, across interactions with individuals, with mapping projects as well. Uh, and for a critical theory, it was fascinating that it was so empirical. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't just a kind of, uh, broader reflection on architecture theory, but actually it was a set of practices. As you said, it started from um, the way the book is organized is around three main chapters. Each one of these three chapters is uh, discussing one specific dichotomy, uh, one specific binary position. I'm using, I'm referring to Derrida's model of binary position, where he says that um, usually in such dichotomies, one notion is privileged over the other. So we have the primary and the secondary notions. Uh, for example, form, matter. Both are fundamental in architecture, traditionally. But um, throughout architecture and history, form is associated with the conceptual, the idea, uh, the visual, and matter is associated with the experiential, the sensuous, the everyday, the ephemeral, and so on. So what Derrida says that, is that in order to open up a dichotomy, actually what sometimes happens is that the secondary notion is elevated into primary notion. Um, and when this is done, usually a third notion is introduced, which opens up this dichotomy. For example, I'm referring to chapter three, which is actually the second one. Substantive, yeah. And this is before, uh, beyond the formal versus the material, the, the idea of performance. And in that case, um, the ephemeral, which is used like as the title of the book, is here uh, discussed in the form of the notion of performative. So the notion of the performative in this section is introduced to open up the dichotomy between the form and the matter. To, 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 uh, 
describe some parts of the discussion of this chapter in simple words, one could think um, of some specific buildings. Let's say the Blair project of Dillerans Cathedral, a fantastic project built uh, several years ago. And, where, and where is this? If you could say a bit, a bit more detail about that. Okay, it's um, the, the, I'm referring to this specific example because this building was actually made of evaporated water. It was it looked like a cloud yeah. uh, above the lake. So actually form and matter well, what was form, what was matter? It was evaporated water. It was in a constant state of change. Other examples could be Toyoita's wind tower, where um, specific sensors and microphones were capturing the speed of the wind and the sound of the city. And the tower was lit in different ways based on what was happening in the border area. And, and which city is this? Because, I mean, people want to read the book and see the, the diagrams. So. Yes. Where, whereabouts is that? Um, so, wind, I think it is in uh, Tokyo. Um, so, this example again is showing that in some cases, foreign matter can really be distinguished. And you have the same sort of experimental method here, so uh, the book, uh, this is difficult to illustrate on a podcast, but the book is full of really interesting uh, photographs and uh, pictorial representations of things like mapping projects, um, you know, Landscapes, the building sites change landscapes as well, um, and you know, there's kind of mapping projects uh, that go along with this too. Um, so I wonder if you could say again on the kind of um, the distinction between um, formal and material and the idea of performative. How, how do the experiments get to grips with the idea of performative? How do they engage with the idea of the wrong question. Maybe you could just say a bit about what the experiments were. So what was the, well, what was the performance of the, 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 um, the question is absolutely right. The, um, the notion of the performative was addressed through a number of experiments again, through a number of mappings, where what was mapped was not only what was static in the city, like buildings, roads, bridges, and so on, or even just some specific formal functions. What we had attempted to map with my colleagues at the time was to map the um, everyday, to map very specific experiences uh, we had within the city. So our attempt was to reperform through a mapping process our journey there. So it was not a map of it was not a map of specific objects or volumes, not even of events. It was a re-performance, a re-enactment of the journey there. So the map-making process itself was 
the map. It was not the final object what mattered, but it was the understanding that the process, this process of map making revealed. And the sort of the process takes place across a whole kind of eclectic range of cities across the world. Um, it's very interesting, kind of, you know, you talk about being in Edinburgh and, you know, sort of being based in Edinburgh when you're doing the work. But, you know, it's, it's a global world, um, you know, because the examples are from all different parts of the world and quite eclectic. And I think this eclecticism um, is a route to the other kind of major uh, topic that you get towards, which is the question of, kind of digital and social media. And this it is the kind of fourth and final substantive chapter, that, you know, beyond the physical versus the digital, the hybrid. And I, I still have a couple of questions about that, but I wonder if you could just talk us through what's going on in that, that division between physical and digital and the idea behind that. I also present some discussions around one of the main questions set in the book, which also presented in the back cover, um, which was one of my initial questions when I started this piece of research. So my question was, in contemporary world, where there are so many different digital media involved in our everyday lives, like mobile phones, GPS systems, smartphones, um, wireless networks that we connect to in different parts of the city, um, a range of different gadgets, media, technologies, and so on. So my question was, how does the emergence of all these media influence our way of thinking about space? What are the implications of those media in our everyday experience of space? Um, uh, the way in which we map and interpret spaces, the way in which we design spaces as architects. So that was a very broad question. And again, the answer could have been, well, it doesn't really matter. So by conducting a number of experiments throughout uh, this research time, which um, I presented in this chapter, but not only, some are in previous chapters, that digital media mainly influences, influences as a tool to think with about space. And because through these media, time, temporality can be mapped more accurately, um, then the, the notion of the ephemeral in time is introduced in the design process uh, in a more substantial way. For example, again, a very, very simple example could be that a few years ago, we couldn't very easily make animations of spaces as activists. We couldn't visualize how it would feel like walking in a space. This is a very, very simple example. Other examples are, uh, have to do with previous experiments that I referred to. For example, in the past, it would be really difficult to map accurately the sound of spaces. If in these experiments, binaural microphones were used, to a very accurate um, recording of the sound, of the surround of sound, was uh, mapped. So this would have been more difficult with the technologies of the past. Mm. Yes, yeah, yeah. Making websites... Having to do that with you know, yes. analog or onto tape. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
having the possibility with our very kind of and also uh, the, the use of the sites as well. So, you know, the photographs in China, you know, that would have been sort of much more difficult if you have to take lots and lots of equipment with you out to the sites. And, you know. Yes, and at the stage of um, analyzing the findings and experimenting with um, the way of working with them, having the possibility to make websites so easily and create an entirely different type of narrative than the one you make when you make a video or a book or a text. Um, so, uh, representing, for example, in the um, section of the sound mappings of Edinburgh, um, a number of websites were produced where you could click in parts of the city and you could listen to the sounds and then try to reflect on how that relates to a specific location and so on. So, this wouldn't have been possible, it wouldn't be so easy, or it wouldn't be a tool to think with for us 20 years ago. And it's interesting that, you know, it's the sort of... The, the relationship with, you know, the kind of to work in Edinburgh in the same chapter, which is the kind of visual non visual chapter, you know, you've got that kind of relationship with Venice, the Greek pavilion, mm -hmm. which in turn, you know, is a kind of site interactive in intervention, yes. But it's a site in Venice that is about yeah. Athens and is, you know, attempting to kind of sonically represent Athens in another city in the context of an international art fair. So as you identify all of these, both, I suppose, the research methods, but also many of the research objects are made possible and plausible. Practical by, by digital media, which is very interesting because um, I think this is something that perhaps uh, in the design of built environment urban space, you know, we have these questions about maybe environmental standards or you know, what will it look like, but there isn't a question of you know, how are the everyday practices that we're experiencing as transformations around things like being set at least, you know, East London Cafe recording this with you. How is that impact on our architecture? everyday life and experience of things. Um, that's exactly what you said. Like a few years ago, maybe we wouldn't sit in a cafe to have this discussion. It wouldn't have been so easy. We wouldn't have these gadgets already available to us. Um, so uh, in that section of the book, as you said, um, my, one of the observations is that digital media function as tools to think with about space and also about space through time. So the notion of time is introduced um, in this way. And um, another way to, to, to look at it, as you said, like in the past, it's not only that these media were not so available so easily, it's also that traditionally there was this um, perception that the digital is something kind of opposite to the tactile, to the senses. That's another traditional dichotomy that I am questioning or examining. You know, on one hand, we had the we have the tactile experience of things, the very immediate experience of things, of the physical world. And on the other hand, we have the world of the digital media, the virtual. 
So, if we think of the um, text of Johann uh, Palasma, he reflects upon the thinking hand. And my understanding of his text is that what he says, and I kind of agree to that, one cannot replace this immediate relation to the hand as a medium of expression. Okay. Now, one could argue, though, that specific new media could, instead of limiting this tactile experience, See the immediate, uh, exactly, they could even enhance it in specific cases. For example, you're probably familiar with the 3D pens. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm referring to two different types. Uh, there is one where you hold the pen and you draw in three dimensions, and this is represented in a virtual world in the computer. But there's also the new kind of 3D pen, which is still in an experimental stage, where with some sort of material, synthetic material, you draw as if you make a model. 3D drawing. So this very immediate tactile sense of the hand can be now used in three dimensions. And in the future it may be the technology will. And again, it's interesting that kind of transformation in architectural terms of uh, you know, the phases of drawing a model you know, and so on and so forth. They get broken down and those, again, that kind of Dravidian opposition just starts to disappear and we get new things That's really interesting. One of the... Um, interested in uh, right across the book before I sort of about the way you conclude or actually don't conclude uh, the book is the problem of sort of representing this stuff in the text and it's something that uh, obviously to those there are as you know sort of starting point some people like Benjamin as well and architectural theorists like Shimmy uh, you know you talk about and people like this who are the you know, theoretical end of architecture. There is, there is an interesting question about these things as very heavily concerned with representation and you're talking about digital, sonic, performance in the three main chapters of the book and yet it's a book, it's, you know, it's a, we, we both have copies in front of us, it's a material object, you know, it's got that kind of weight that a hardback book does. So I wonder, how did you sort of get to grips with, I guess, collating all of this learning, all of this, you know, kind of information, and getting it into a book, you know, in a form that has a beginning, has an end, has pages and pictures and letters and words and stuff like that. Mm, that's a very interesting question. Uh, one could say that the, the question that I said is an almost impossible question in the sense that I'm trying to explore the, what resists analytical representation. So one could say that actually what the process that I followed in order to explore that cannot be mapped themselves either. Um, however, one could argue that by presenting the processes, the events, the experiments, and so on, one is in some 
sense becoming exposed to those and experiences face in one of her books that, you know, this book or any book or any building she's using the example of the book which I find quite successful um, is not just its content well, it is its content the narrative the stories that it tells but actually as an object it's got some materiality so the other day my students had asked her to give a lecture and present the book to them so it just started by well, you want me to talk about this book this book weights like 200 grams it's made of paper parts of it possibly recycled but it says here like ethically resourced or something um, it has been printed a few miles south from London a number of people worked from it from different countries from different places Katie Lloyd Thomas is using the example of both the book and the building so that it's, it, what matters is not only what it represents, what the story tells, but also what it does. She was also referring to buildings. A building is not only a finished object, it's also a number of processes it activates in order to be built. It's the number of workers who work there, technicians, contractors, builders, architects, engineers. Um, they come from different places. The materials the building is made of come from different parts of the world. All these stories and all these events are part of the building, or in other words, are what the building has done. Now, this may be not answering the question in a straightforward way, but what I no, want to say is that through this book, I present a number of processes that I followed um, with several colleagues I worked with uh, throughout those years. And I map those processes. So the narrative is not a linear narrative on purpose. It's a narrative that is disrupted by things that happen, experiments that happen, outputs that are unanticipated. Um, so it, in some sense, it is a designed process. It is designed, though, in a fairly open way, so as to allow for unanticipated things to be encountered and revealed. I see. And this is quite clearly shown in the conclusion, which is not a conclusion. <laughs> so the book is quite explicit about not having a concluding chapter that says, and here's what you've just read, I hope it makes sense. It says there are lots more questions now, 
and we need to think about them instead of reviewing and kind of concluding. So I guess um, this takes me to this question of sort of where are you going to go next with both what's in the book and potential new projects? Um, and are, I suppose, is your future work going to be still in this line of sort of disruption of urban experiments um, and raising kind of questions for architecture theory? Mm-hmm. Um, well, before I move to that, I would like to ask if somebody reads the book and has any objections, comments, um, I'm more than happy if they contact me to let me know what they think and any mistakes I've made, anything they entirely disagree with. I would be absolutely perfectly happy with that and be really enthusiastic, actually. Now, concerning what I'm doing now, to be honest, it is not a linear continuation of this. Um, this book had come out of some like, genuine questions I had about architecture. Like, as architects, well, what do we do in this world? You know, what do we design? Actually, there's so many things that are beyond our control. Jeremy Till describes this whole thing so accurately and in such a great way in his book. Architecture. So, um, my question was what is can we examine in any way or can we experience or how could we encounter the ephemeral atmospheric intangible aspects of space and as we discussed a while ago the second question was how do new media influence the way in which we approach and design space so and then I argue that these two are linked and one informs the other so when this book when I started writing this book working on this research um, a number of books were published really at the same time within 10 years uh, on different aspects of the ephemeral intangible immaterial in architecture and I found that quite interesting so there is an obvious link between that the inquiry about the ephemeral the intangible and the emergence of a new media now, um, working on a, one could say, entirely different project. You can tell me if there's anything to do with my previous research. Um, I'm, I collaborate with a neurophysiologist from Queen Alexandra Hospital, uh, Dr. Christopher Moore, and a number of colleagues from health sciences and psychology in the University of Portsmouth. And we are starting conducting some experiments with brainwave mapping. Um, we are using this new portable EG device. EG uh, is the Enkephal brain scan. Yeah. It was really difficult to yeah. carry with you the whole equipment. Yeah. In the last few years, 
some new devices have been commercially available and one can actually map brain activity and be walking around the city. So the first team, to the best of my knowledge, that started working on that was um, Richard Coyne, Professor Richard Coyne from Edinburgh, who was also my PhD supervisor at the time. So together with his colleagues, they had started working on that. Uh, and their research and papers were really, really inspiring. So with my colleagues were working in the same broader area and were trying to compare the brain responses in real environments, in physical environments, and in digital, virtual environments. Now, this is still in experimental stages. So again, I don't know to what extent this method will reveal us something or will really offer us a better understanding about space. However, we did find it, my colleagues, really exciting as a question. We can quite easily monitor the different types of brain waves while people explore, walk in the city, explore different environments, or are in front of the computer and navigate in specific virtual environments. So the question is, if we uh, design very specific experiments through which we could map the brain response to very specific incentives, like a change of light, change of sound, change of color, in a controlled lab environment and in the city, if these first few experiments could let us know if this tool and method could be explored further. So very, very kind of exploratory research about this, I suppose, even just testing the technology as much as uh, testing theory and hoping uh, for kind of practical results. The other interesting aspect about this new project is that it couldn't even start without a very close collaboration between neurologists, neurophysiologists and architects. Because it's not just two different disciplines inputting their um, knowledge, it's just that even that the experiments could not be designed without a very, very close interaction and collaboration. So um, that's another really interesting aspect that through this project, our intention is also to explore cross-disciplinary, uh, the potential of cross-disciplinary collaborations and research. And will you be doing this for a year, three years? Uh, um, this has not been defined yet. We're starting some experiments and we'll see how it goes. If we figure out that there's a lot of potential, we'll carry on examining that. If we see that actually it is not really revealing something interesting enough maybe we will um, leave it for now so I I don't know how long we will be working on that we shall see that's really interesting so uh, thank you very much Uh, thank you very much Uh, we've been talking about no matter theories and practices of the ephemeral in architecture Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. I've been your host, Dr. David O'Brien from City University London, and we've been talking to Dr. Anastasia Caladino about her new book, No Matter, Theories and Practices of the Ephemeral in Architecture. Thanks for listening.